Namaste and in la catch and welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel. And as always, I want to draw your attention to those two phrases. Namaste comes from the Sanskrit, an ancient language spoken. It's called Brahmi. And it means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. In la catch comes from another ancient civilization, the Mayans. And it simply means I am another you. Now, if these ancient civilizations knew this, how can we bring that forth to the present and be that respectful towards each other? Try it. See what happens. Don't believe me? Test it out. You'll get some phenomenal results you never expected. All right. Well, thanks. And I'd like to introduce this week's uh, guest, uh, Jeff Cohen, who is a fractional C-level executive and he's got a tech-oriented environmental and sustainable business called the C-Level Roundtable is one, and Steel Environmental as the second one that he is the chief operating officer of. And he's also an author who wrote the book called Count Honorable. And it's a practical guide to lift, shift, and empower you and your team. Jeff? Thanks so much for being here. We're going to have a phenomenal conversation, I feel. I'm excited. Thank you for having me, Zen. It's, um, it's really my, my privilege and um, my honor to, to be able to have this conversation with you and share it with all the people that will benefit from listening. Absolutely. And, and my pleasure as well, Jeff. So initially, you know, you've had some really tremendously elevated positions in the business world that many don't experience. And we'll talk about that later on. But for in the beginning, I want to kind of trace back as to how you developed your awareness and, and how that inner side of life impacted your early development in your young life, your teenage years and, and how you got the impetus to head the direction that you went? Well, that's a great question, Zen. I think, you know, when you look at my early life, when I do at least, and I think about the things that shaped me and had me um, where I am today, um, there's a few stories that kind of come to mind. I'll just, you know, pick one of them and share. Sure. Um, but I will say this, as a preface to that is that, you know, my dad who passed away when he was 51 left an indelible mark on me and my sisters. And I remember him ensuring that we knew that we could do anything that we wanted, whether it was to be a garbage man or CEO or something in between, like whatever that was for him, like he just wanted to make sure that we got to do what tuned us on. That's powerful. And yeah, it was, um, I mean, he in his own right was extraordinarily um, bright and successful and um, then took on being an entrepreneur himself after having been uh, one of the top executives for Playtex back way back when and then became a stockbroker. And we moved to Los Angeles and from New York and he was a stockbroker and like, hey, look, back then it's like, well, you got, you got to have your own book of business. You got to 
do it all. And like that was his thing. And um, so he went from managing a lot of people and having a big organization to really being, um, you know, accountable himself to what it was that he really wanted to do. And um, watching him and learning from him and seeing him was a great um, experience for me as a, as a child to, to look at, like, what do I want to do in my life? Right. And it gave you the opportunity to see someone that had had great success in one area and decided to make a total shift and move into something else and, and have success there too. The, the ability to do that is rare, let alone 100%. to have a direct experience of watching your father do it as an example to you. Yeah, hundred percent. And, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about like their success and how great things are and all that. And I just want to let you know that um, I have had some ginormous failures. And so in this conversation, I want people to know like there's no question for me that's off limits. Um, if you make me cry, you make me cry. It's only because I'm willing to share and it still hurts and it's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And I think the power of being able to be emotionally connected to the things that I've done, and not just the things I've done like that didn't work, but also where I got to learn something and take that into the future. Um, like my whole goal in having C-Level Roundtable as a business is you know, that no business stands alone, that no one ever go through some of the things I've gone through. I've really pulled some big, um, I've done some really stupid things. And some, some things all, that, that, that might not have been so stupid that just didn't work. And yeah. that's a lot the way it goes. But I think, you know, I can face those today. Well, isn't it funny that in those situations where we feel like we've done stupid, then we, we roll into this self-deprecating mode for a while, right? We just beat up on ourselves when, and then sometime later we look back and go, wait a minute, that was like perfect for my own development because I learned something very valuable, even though I thought it was a stupid mistake at the time. Yeah. Um... And the, the, and the mistakes are, Obvious, you know, things didn't work out maybe the way you wanted to, but still you learned, you know, it's like Edison learned 90 or hundreds of ways not to make a light bulb until something happened and boom, there it was. And he didn't stop. It's true. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things. Um, so early in my life, I was eight years old and I wrote all of the professional sports teams and I asked them to send me stickers. Now, I had no idea what was coming, but it was a stack. <laughs> no doubt. And um, then I turned to my mom and I said, that wall, that's the one I want to put them all on. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> right, right. So I had all these stickers. What do you do with all these stickers? She won't let me put it on the wall in my room. What are the odds she's going to let me put them on the car? Um, so <laughs> I, um, I put them on my notebook and I went to school and my friends started buying them from me. 
I made 50 bucks and my dad said to me, Jeff, that's amazing. You're an entrepreneur. And I said, wow, that's awesome, dad. Yeah. What's that mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've been living that ever since from such a young age to today, being in a position to really look at what does it mean to be an entrepreneur and, um, and what you can do with that, that has an impact for the world. Um, and, you know, I look at that as an early experience and memory, and we all have those. Um, like the first chapter of my book is called Grand Theft Auto. It's, um, it actually uh, illustrates for you the very first um, trigger that I found in myself. Now, I've been looking for my triggers and the things that set me off for the last 10 years. Like I've really been focused on like communication. I took a program uh, called the Team Management Leadership Program, which lasted for two years. Um, did a lot of soul searching. And what I um, discovered is that I still don't know all of the things that trigger me. So while I'm writing Count Donable, and I'm really thinking about like, what are, like, why am I me? What have I done to get here? Um, and I notice like these are early, early events in our lives that have caused it. And, and what that has done Zen for me is it's, it's made me very aware of the fragility of children. My wife and I recently became foster to adopt parents here in LA County. Oh, bless your heart. You know, I had that advantage as a child. I was orphaned and adopted. That's amazing. You know, there's at any time just in LA County about 20,000 children that are in that system. And um, we, we have been in this role, moving toward this role for three years. And in December of last year, we, um, we had our first placement and then she was taken back to her family two days later. And then a week later, we received an eight month old, beautiful little girl that was just, you know, in need, right? Yeah. Um, and she came from some difficult circumstances. And at eight months, you don't know anything. You're barely connected to the world, but I will tell you this. The trauma you can experience as an infant is something that it takes something to, to shift. And in the last six months that my wife and I have been raising her, what we have clearly seen is that there are times when she gets triggered and times when there's something that's been there that we were working on helping her be okay mm -hmm. in life with. So, you know, I still know that personally, I have not uncovered all of my triggers. I have not found them all. I've gotten to age five. I know there's some <laughs> stuff before that. I'm gonna keep looking. I know it's locked in here someplace, right. but I, I, 
I will tell you this that's amazing about my foster daughter. She's, she's just turned one, a little over one. And when my sister showed her an image of my father, just a black and white picture of my dad, she lit up. Every single time she sees that picture, she lights up. It's like he's there, like elevating her somehow. And she has that experience. And we, you know, I mean, it's amazing. I, I just. Oh, no doubt. And, and to just witness that and to make the observation and the clarity of that effect. And it examples to me that there are some things going on in other realms that we don't understand yet. And yet it carries this energy that is sensible and especially with young children because they haven't developed the filters not to sense it yet, which is generally what our society teaches. I know it. that's, it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. And, it is. you know, most of the work that I do is with people that have blocked most of that out. Uh, and True. So, and, and for the time, you know, I have to say that, that what you, the journey you took to find your triggers is something that very few ever really consider. I had similar journey, only mine came, it, I realized that, and, and thinking back, you can imagine, here's a, a newborn taken away from its mother, not being, you know, able to go home be, and being in a room full of other infants and sensing their parents coming and taking them, going home and feeling this sense of abandonment although it wasn't fully cognated at the time. And then throughout my life, I found that I've got various levels of triggers regarding abandonment. Mm -hmm. And even today, you know, I just got remarried in 2017. And in going through this intimate coalescence of energy with my wife, there were instances where I was still afraid of being abandoned even though I knew that this love that we share with each other is impenetrable at the level of togetherness, right? That, that we are locked in and that she feels that way towards me and, and I feel that way towards you, her, yet there's still that trigger that comes up at times. It's like, oh, wow, okay, that's, I, thank you very much. Now, <laughs> well, I, I will tell you this, you know, so um, in, in looking at triggers, because I, I think that's something that people don't think about very much, but the impact of being triggered is substantial. Not um, just on self, on everybody around you, too. Absolutely, 100%. I, I will say this. Um, so first off... <clears throat> You know, the last 20 years has been a real self-discovery for me, particularly the last 10 since I met my wife and started doing some of these self-awareness programs, right? Interesting how um, relationships will do that, huh? Right? Um, well, I was going through a divorce and my kids were not talking with me. And I can relate to that. really took something to get. Get out of here, mosquito. Uh, <laughs> It really took something to get um, 
back to where they would. And, you know, I love my sons. They're amazing men today. They are people you can really count on in a lot of ways. And yet back, you know, 10 years ago, going through my divorce, they were hurt. Right. And it just pains me. Can't help that. Right. When you grow up and, and I've had the same experience, I have four kids. I've got six great grandkids now and I'm still rather estranged. Um, and, and yet there's this thing that they go through. Right. And it may be short term. It may be long term. But they have to go through it because it's the nature of wanting your parents to be together and then seeing this destructive activity that rips them apart, however it occurs. Right. And it may be gentle. You know, it may just be an agreement that, okay, we've, we just can't get along. We need to separate. Still, their emotional bodies are highly impacted by it. Well, they, they were teenagers and didn't necessarily understand what was happening. I don't know the kids ever really do. Yeah. But, you know, when I look back at all of that experience, um, what I'll say is, I had a software company. I grew from nothing to 50 employees very rapidly in like two years. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of took my life and just exploded it. It was amazing. Like you just got to imagine what it's like to grow a business at that pace. Oh, yeah. We That's were working with 100, 100 Fortune 500 and Global 2000 companies, and we were helping them implement agile software process so they could write software. And what a lot of what I've written in the book stems actually from that agile methodology, now it's the agile business process, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But when 2007 hit and the market just absolutely tanked, um, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, the state of California, Lockheed Martin, every single one of our clients that we were doing business with at the time, said, hey, we love you guys. What you do for us is amazing. We're going to stop now. All at once. And, Ouch. you know, I had mortgaged and remortgaged my house. I had done a lot of things that were, was, were not necessarily good decisions. Um, because when you're growing a business at a rapid pace like that, it's a cash monster. Oh, yeah. And you, and you got to keep up. It needs money. And suddenly I went from, you know, 50 people to zero in six months. And I was depressed. And there were so many sleepless nights. And then I just would sit in front of Star Trek for eight hours a day trying to escape. And what really happened was I pushed away my kids and my wife like the most important people in my life didn't want to be with me. It was all on me. I mean, I can own that today. It, yep. You know, um, I can see clearly how I caused it. And then I can also see clearly how, um, like people said, get some help, Jeff, talk to someone. And we didn't view mental health 10 or 15 years ago the way we do it today. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't embraced quite the same way. And I was embarrassed, I think, at the time to say I need some help.
And um, so I didn't. Um, and just, you know. Right, you want to get through it yourself. And, and I can totally relate. I was, um, I worked for Allied Signal, which you're familiar with, back in the 80s. And towards the tail end of, of our marriage, I was putting in anywhere from 65 to 85 hours a week. I was in production control, responsible for $7 million in shipments and 800 part numbers for commercial spares. And so and I loved what I was doing. I was also heavily involved with the church, doing the elder duties and going to school, trying to finish my degree. So I wasn't home. And that created a separation that I didn't realize the impact that was going to happen later on and so you know it was um it was tough for me because i i grew up with parents that no matter what they stuck together through everything yeah. right and it, life isn't always easy but yet when you make that commitment to be with someone it's a commitment that you need to honor through thick and thin right well that didn't happen so it it just destroyed me um, afterwards and so I spent the uh, year after our divorce just trying to find myself again kind of like you probably did and I thought I could get through it in a couple of years not a chance <laughs> that's a several decade process of really analyzing yourself what you did how you did it how you could improve what you could do better uh, towards you know building relationships and things like that that we don't often really consider after that because we want to point fingers and not realize that those three that are coming back or six if you're you know if you're shooting for both hips um that those are self-examination points that you need to be aware of absolutely so you know so the reality is is that like till i could actually own that i did all of those things i was ineffective as a leader and I look back at my company um, and I think about all of the things that I did. And I, I know I didn't treat people the way I'd have liked to have been treated. I know that um, there's a lot I would have done differently had I had the wherewithal. Um, Awareness, even. And, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and, yeah, I'm really clear that you know, the things I did and said impacted people not in a good way in some cases, and I'm sorry. I mean, that's all I can say is, is I'm sorry, and, you know, people wanted to work for me and my company because we had tremendous momentum, a great vision, and all of that, and when it came down to when the heat was on, like, I, I just didn't manage well, mm. and I and I've learned over the years, like, what are the things that you can do to make people's lives workable in a high-stress environment, right? When you've got a goal, a dream, an ambition. And I was an entrepreneur, and I said, I'm going to run this company for a long time, and then I'm going to sell it, right? And I ran it for a while, and then it went bankrupt. To see but those two visions, they didn't meet in the middle of the way I wanted, and there was a tremendous impact. And, you know, out of that, 
came this notion that I actually had an opportunity to, to shift the conversation. And so when I started that team management leadership program I was telling you about, I very quickly got about 50 um, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business owners together in small groups. And we were looking at what the gaps were in our business and what didn't work. And we found one common thread. I was amazed. I'm like, wow, there's really just one thing? I'm like, no, there's gotta be a million things. Sometimes it's just that simple. Well, here's the thing. It's really um, basic. Like when you get to the very basic, you funnel down from the world of what's wrong to the one thing that triggers it, right? Then you're not going to believe it. It's unbelievable how simple this concept is. I found that everybody has a different definition of what effective communication is. Not surprising whatsoever, because in both my degrees, that was the core issue was communication. Right. And I have a, a dear friend, mentor, 20 years my senior, was president of, of ADR, uh, or the American Association for Alternative Dispute Resolution for several years. Right. And he says to me one time, he goes, you know, there really is no conflict. What happens is that two people that think they're in disagreement are, are simply miscommunicating. They've got two different dictionaries. They're speaking and listening from their own, and they have no clue what the other one is. 100%. So I'm going to share a story with you. It's not in the book. Um, this ought to be juicy then. Well, it is. It's actually really, really juicy. And it's a personal story that if you're unable to relate it to anything that happens in your life personally or business-wise, I would invite you to, to like rewind and listen to it again. Okay. It's just, it's just, in my opinion, the most amazing illustration of effective communication in action. So my wife and I um, took our one-year-old to visit some friends in San Diego um, a month ago. And my wife and her friend um, went to an event together. So my friend and I took our two girls to dinner. And we decided we were going to walk. He has a wagon. The seven-year-old um, is sitting in the wagon, loving that she's got the one-year-old right there. And after dinner, we hop back in the wagon to go to frozen yogurt. And on the way to frozen yogurt, I turn my head back and I see my one-year-old standing up in the wagon, holding on for dear life with this look of fear and terror on her face. And I said to my friend, please stop. And he did. I went over and picked her up and comforted her. What the seven-year-old didn't know is, like, she doesn't know how to sit down safely yet. Ah. So it's really scary for her to sit. But the seven-year-old is sitting there on her video game, and I turned to her and I said, hey, honey, I have a question. Did you notice her sitting there 
are standing up and, and scared. And she said, yeah, I told you. I said, well, how? And um, so then I said to her, I said, hey, I have a favor to ask. She goes, sure. What? And so if that happens again, could you make sure that I answer you and that I heard what you said? She said, got it. And then she went right back to her video game. Yeah. Now, that's the way most communications in the world go. But Unfortunately, yeah, you're spot on. And especially with technology and phones today, you know, the, uh, the similar thing. It, it, I went to a coffee shop and I'm watching this table of teenagers and not one of them are talking to each other and they're all on the phones. But hold on for one sec, because that's not the end of the story. Yeah, I can imagine. Right. So, so here's the thing that you want to take away from this. Because this, this is the one thing you can do in your communication with anybody to lock it in. So I said to her, hey, honey, um, as she, she went back to her video game, right? I'm just curious. What did you get? Now, it took her 15 seconds, which is a long time to process. Mm -hmm. To pick her head back up to say, well, then I should make sure that you heard me. Partial, now the, right? Right. But now, but now the communication, like it exists. Like she's going to make sure I heard her. And, you know, the, the point to that story, Zen, is really simple. It's we communicate, we hear got it, and we move on to the next thing. The reason I wrote count honorable is because people have a negative impression of the word accountable. It gets a really bad rap. Mm -hmm. It took me two years in this team management leadership program to get comfortable with the word account accountable like it's not a bad thing. But most people hear the word accountable every night on the six o'clock news when someone's going to jail or when there's a politician they don't like and they want to hold them accountable. Being held accountable sucks. And that's the experience most people have with that word. So being in a position where you can go from that to where you can be counted on for something, it's enormous. It actually is. And it's a necessary, and you're absolutely right. We get that kind of programming from major media, basically. And so this is a lot of how we're programming, uh, programmed unconsciously for the most part. And yet it still happens. And that the accountability really is just about being a good human. Well, the thing is, is that most, most people have a, a negative impression of the word accountable. They don't mm -hmm. want to be accountable. That's the very last thing they want to be. Right? And then your boss says to you, you're accountable for something. And you're like, oh, okay. Right. Right. I mean, you really well, what do you do with that? It. I mean, do you make others accountable for yourself? I mean, that seems kind of oxymoronic, and yet we do. Well, that's just it. There's two parts of accountability, but oftentimes we only exercise the one part. Mm -hmm. The one part we exercise is we say, 
Zen, you're accountable for washing the dishes. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not a strength I have. Not something I like doing. Frankly, I'm not particularly good at it, right? But now I'm accountable for it. So the sink fills up with dishes till I finally, you know, hear my wife say four times, can you wash them already? And then I do. But the reality is, is that's not what happens in business. What happens in business is the CEO says to someone, I need you to do this. And then they forget about it. And three weeks later, on Friday, right before the long weekend at four o'clock in the afternoon, they get a phone call. It's their boss. Hey, where is this? When am I going to get it? Right? Now, it's not necessarily something that caters to their strengths. It's not something that they're particularly good at and don't like doing. And it was added on after they got the job or during the final job interview. Mm -hmm. And they said yes, because that's where their paycheck comes from or where they right. want it to come from. Right. And the manager has now taken their A employee and made them a B employee. And they do that all the time because now they're disappointing you. What's missing is that in accountability, there's trust. I'm going to trust you're going to do something. And you'll remember this. And then there's verify. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev signed the SALT agreement and, you know, reduced nuclear arms in Russia, there was trust. Ronald Reagan said, we're going to trust you, Mikhail. And then we're going to verify, we're going to send teams of people to inspect. And what's missing for most organizations is an effective verify system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about the book a little bit. Um, what I created was um, a system that has people understanding what's expected of them and being checked in with on a regular basis. And, you know, to some people that could occur like it's micromanagement. To me, it's just management. Like, if you've ever managed people, then people managers, what they often do is they aim to manage people, but managing people is a lot like herding cats. Very hard to do. Shift that. For the most part, if you have that notion that it is, right, because you don't necessarily know how. And you're well, afraid to ask questions. That's true. But I would invite you to consider that managing people is not something you really want to do. They don't want to be managed. They want freedom to do what they're good at, what they Absolutely. love doing, and what they, you know, what they want to do, what they have strengths in. So instead of managing people, manage promises. That's a lot more powerful. If someone says to you, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this, you can count on me for that, but I can't do this. Don't ask me to wash the dishes. Great. Right. Let me find someone that loves washing the dishes, right? I had this amazing woman. She's like family to us and she comes and she cares for our household because it's so rare that you'll ever see me mop the floor but she does it every week. 
And she loves doing it. I can count on her for that, right? The reality is, is that if you have an employee that has strengths in an area that you're leveraging and loves doing that job and is good at it, what do you think they would call that job? Probably their dream job. Yeah. Right? Now, if they have their dream job, what's the likelihood they're going to leave you? It's pretty small, really small. And the fact of the matter is, is that turnover happens and then HR goes nuts trying to find people to fill the job and it costs lots of money. You've lost all of that cultural history that you have with that person and all of the stuff they know about their job that they're good at that doesn't get passed along. And now you have to retrain someone and get them up to speed and the future looks bright until during that last interview, you say, oh, by the way, can you also wash the dishes? And from that moment, you just made the A employee you were about to hire a B employee because they're gonna start disappointing you from day one. Stop that craziness, it's madness. And you've set them up to do so. I kind of like the UC level round table I've been part of a, a peer board uh, for a number of years and, and it was uh, gentleman's been doing it for 30, 35 years, also 20 years, my senior. And uh, it was a gentleman. I told you that we uh, co-hosted the two small biz guys radio. Sure. Podcast. And just an amazing gentleman. And, and one of the discussions that we have is just like this, you know, how, when you're onboarding, how do you, create the responsibilities, the expectations from both sides, the open communication. Uh, I'm working with another gentleman that does conscious contracts so that it's win-win. It's not a one-way street, which is what you're talking about. It's like the offer and the acceptance, right? And that's not necessarily an agreement. That's just a willingness to step in and and do what's expected. Uh, I actually disagree with that. Okay, cool. I think it's absolutely an agreement. I think. Well, I agree with that, but I'm talking about a a true win-win because when you set it up, the other person is disrespecting their own boundaries through their agreement. I agree because they want to please and they want the job for some reason, or there's something that's coming from a different angle and impacting that. 100%. Okay. Question. Yeah, and I agree with you. There is an agreement there, but it's not to the depth of, of where it could be, which is what we're talking about, right? The, well, and, the A employee is one that says, okay, yeah, I'm willing to do this, but sorry, I'm not going to wash your dishes. But <laughs> the thing is, is that things change over time because I remember, you know, in my life, I started out in sales. Right. And then I wanted to get into technology sales. I went to work at IBM and some other tech companies and I loved doing that. And then I started my own company. Right. And I loved doing that. And then I started another company and times got tough and I had to go back to work. And I went back to IBM and then a couple of other small, smaller software companies after that. What I realized when I was with those companies is that was not the job I wanted. But we hire people based on their experience, not their desire. We believe them when they say this is what they want to do. 
Right. And wow. now today, one of the things that's prevalent in the onboard, in the hiring process, it, it, more so than pretty much anything else is attitude. Yeah. So innovation, so creativity, being able to be flexible in tough situations in order to figure out what needs to be done in the best way possible. Right. But if you knew what someone's strengths were and how they fit into your team in the beginning before you even hired them or did that analysis on a regular basis, like every week you can tell, ah, Jeff doesn't like doing this task. We keep pushing it out. Every time I meet with him, this priority of mine is not a priority of his. Okay. Either I can get pissed off at Jeff or... I can look and see if there's someone else on the team that has a strength in this area, does it great, and loves doing it. Because you know what? Let me use Jeff for what he's great at. And let right. me go ahead and use Zen for what he's great at. Yeah. And that's how you have effective teams and teamwork. Right. But that I came out in the strengths movement, right? Yeah. Strengths finder, right? I'm right. a big strengths finder fan. And, and um, when we, we, whenever I do hiring, that's part of it, right? Because I want to know. Sure. There's a couple of other things that are also part of it as well. I think the DISC assessment proves really almost imperative in understanding, first of all, the communication and problem-solving preferences of your potential new hire, right? When you well, know how they operate, then you can learn how. It's like the fifth you know, strategy in Covey's. Stop. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. You have to understand, and it goes back to the two dictionaries. You have to understand the, the other dictionary before you can begin to communicate with them in their language. You're still trying to talk your language, and they don't understand your language. 100%. Well, and I'll tell you, this is the way we used to use the disk in my software business in the early 2000s. We would... Um, use that to determine after the initial interview who um, the best manager for that person would be based on their disc and the disc of the managers. Sure. That's you're looking for fit. You're, you're looking for a dovetail fit rather than put a round peg in the square hole. Yeah, because we had four managers that any of our professional services staff could go work for. Right. And then what we would do after we had that is we would align that to the strengths of the team and look to see that they were complementary. We weren't looking to see that they were exact because we didn't want that. Right. right? Um, but, you know, in consulting, there were things we were looking for, like, are they a learner? Right. Things like that. So from a a management standpoint, I think that's super, super important as part of your hiring process. And by the way, I, I detail what the process is in the book. In fact, just so you know, I've, I've um, applied for the patent for the process. It's pending right now. Um, but here's the thing about life today. There's nothing new. The only thing that you're going to read in the book that's different is that I went ahead and I took the process to the hairdresser. We dyed some of the hairs blue. Some of them are now purple. Then we combed them over and trimmed them again. And now it's the count honorable method and process. But it's something that stemmed from the early software, agile software development days that I was involved in. 
And now it's really an agile method for managing a business. And what it does is it takes a business from um, um, whatever method they're using. And there's some great methods like the entrepreneur operating system and scaling up and others that I just love. What those methods all have in common is they all say things like you need the right person doing the right thing at the right time. And I agree. I don't think there's anybody that would disagree. Here's what's missing. How do you know you have the right person? How do you know it's the right thing? How do you know it's the right time? So I figured that out. I put that in the countdownable process so that you can figure it out, so that you can align your executives that report to you. And those executives can align their team members And if you have another layer of people or two layers of people, you can stay aligned Mm -hmm. because you're always going to have things that need to be done that are off book. So when you do, who can you count on for those, right? And then, you know, countonable being a play on the word accountable, but really not. Because if you think about it, when you ask me what I can be counted on, I can tell you with pride that you can count on me to have integrity about being on time to meetings. Wow, who has that? Mm -hmm. That you can count on me to follow through and make sure that I got what you wanted me to get before I go off and do it, right? And guess what? Sometimes there's a breakdown. It doesn't always work. But what I'm aiming for is that every leader on your team has the skill to use this process to create more leaders. Because as a business owner, as an executive, or as an entrepreneur, if you ever want to have a family vacation and not be working two to four hours a day, you have to empower your people to take stuff on. And it'll be okay. And then what will happen, two amazing things happen. And with these two things, like your life will be different forever. You'll actually be able to have a personal life. And someday, should you decide you want to sell your business, you'll be able to, and you won't have a five-year earnout. Because by the way, most earnouts are never fully paid. Because when you have to be there and you're the most important person in your business, and it cannot grow without you, who wants to buy that if you're right. not there? Right. And if at the stage you're at, when you go to sell it, is that you're still the most important person, what are the odds that you're gonna have the skill to develop someone else to take your job over? Right, right. So what, what I hear you saying with all this is that there's kind of a twofold process. You've gotta have the tools in place to do the initial um, assessments, right, of the individual, their skill set, their attitude, their problem and problem solving communication preferences. And then you have to implement, when you're implementing that, you have to observe the results of how it's working and then kind of um, massage the process along the way. It's kind of like, it reminds me the coming out of education. I, I taught high school for a number of years. And one of the things in our teacher training program, we talked about multiple intelligences and and how 
Gardner's work and that being able, you know, learners have the visual, auditory, and kinesthetic methodology to begin with. And that's about as far as education has gone, as far as assessing how a student learns. Then Gardner came along and said, hey, wait a minute, there's some other things that we've observed and we've, well, I'm calling those multiple intelligences. And there were eight of them at the time, I think, um, including musical rhythmic, um, visual spatial, intrapersonal, interpersonal, um, logical, mathematical, just to name a few. But these are things that at that time could only be observable in the way the students were in their process of learning, right? Which really takes a lot more observational capacity from the teacher. And yet what I found in education was that, you know, for, in one instance, I had 50 students in a classroom and I had 50 minutes of the process, right? And how are you going to give those individuals in individual attention? You know, you've got one minute per student. That's just kind of doesn't make sense. And yet this is what our educational system is. So being able to observe that, especially on uh, when you get into the professional and, and business side of things and, and to be able to tweak it and as because you're in that place of, of being willing to be vulnerable enough to not think you know everything, right? And look at, okay, what's working and how can we improve upon that? Well, there's, first off, just to unpack what you said, because there's a, a whole lot there. Um, there's two issues <clears throat> that we're really talking about. <clears throat> One is um, alignment, right? Mm -hmm. So someone has a vision, They've effectively communicated it, right? And now it can be absorbed and acted on. That's part of the alignment framework I have in the book. And creates the culture. Well, you've got to have a shared um, shared culture. Like there are things about right. the culture you've got to have, right? right? And then there's the trust framework, right? And you put those two together, you get the trust alignment framework. Now, here's the trick. It's not just about alignment. It's not just about trust. You want to know what it's really about. It's about what the outcome is that you want. The number one thing that matters is the outcome. If you communicate effectively based on the outcome you want, it's a lot more likely to show up. However, I have a client. Love this guy. Started working with him about a year ago. Very self-righteous guy. Very smart. He's a doctor. He um, just knows. He's right. Now, there's two ends of the spectrum. There's I'm right. And then there's what you want. You have a choice. You can absolutely be right all day long. Or you can give up being right and say that doesn't matter. What matters is the outcome, mm -hmm. what I want, right? Or what needs to happen. Um, it, it starts with what I want, but it's the process yeah, getting that, right? That you move right. from one position to the other. Well, the, the needs to happen, and I just... I get hung up a little bit on words like need because that is like um, 
a constraint. Agreed. Agreed. So what, what I think about is what you want to have happen and how you prioritize it. Not necessarily have, the how, just that it does. And, and that's where you delegate that trust and alignment to what you've put in place that it actually takes place. Right. But if you're not thinking about the outcome that you want, right, what, what the needs of that want are, are not as relevant initially, at least in your communication with somebody. Right. Right. Because this client used to like kill people off, like important clients that he had. He would just kill them off and then they would stop working with him. And of course, he couldn't figure out why he was blaming them because he well, was the good news. Right. The good news was, is that, you know, it's a process to be open to hearing about outcomes. But over time, what happened was one day he called me up and says, Jeff, you're going to love this. I said, what am I going to love? Because well, I was thinking about an outcome I wanted. And instead of yelling at this other doctor, I held back and let the outcome lead the conversation. Perfect. Right. Well, it, as an entrepreneur, right? We are yes. taught to start with the vision and then back it up. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's that backing up process where you lose the self-righteousness and, and you acquiesce to the, and I'll use this term loosely, the needs of the process. Right. right. Well, the reality is, is that you've got to actually be open and want coaching to be able to make a transformation like that in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people are, and then they really resist it when you start engaging. And what I found is by having a well-defined process, which by the way, the entire process is in the book from step one to step Z, like mm -hmm. everything. And you can implement it yourself. And if you want, you can reach out to me on countonable.com so that me or someone from my team can help you answer questions or participate in our community or whatever you want to do. But like, I'm really committed that it be open source. Like there's nothing other than people knowing that if they want to be certified in this process or if they want to implement the process, there's a support system. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for that invitation too, because that will yeah. serve at least some others, right? And you know, we've got, as long as we're looking for those things that, and willing that the coachability is an important factor. I had a client, uh, I'm in process with a client that came to me with a challenging manager. And, uh, and the question was, as he was describing them, kind of the self-righteous type, right? I said, well, is he coachable? Is he willing? Because unless you're stepping into that place it's just not going to work because you're going to resist it all now that doesn't mean you can't penetrate that shield right but it's a <laughs> and it's a lot more arduous process and still you know it it, uh, it limits the time it takes for the outcome to occur and when you're looking at, at being agile and responsive and flowing with the trends and being able to actualize and take advantage of those, that process really needs to be truncated as much as possible. 
So I would agree. And I think, you know, it's difficult when you have a manager, boss, or somebody in your life that is um, not open and able mm-hmm. to be listening from the outcome, but rather they're listening from what they want. Um, it's not always an easy thing for people to make that shift. So let, also- let's unpack that a little bit. Okay, because you're, this is a critical point that you just made. How do you do that? You don't. You create an opportunity. They will either buy it or not. But there's nothing that you can do to change anybody. People are the way they are. They get to choose if something is working or not working in their life. Right? It's just a sure. choice. Well, how do you it's present true. that? What are the... the points of order, if you will, in the presentation of that invitation to align with the vision? Well, so when somebody is is not open to coaching and they're your boss, which by the way, most employees are not likely to say to their boss, hey, are you open to coaching? Like they're just, they're not going to do that. They're going to take whatever comes at them and then spend the next three days sorting it out in their head, it's gonna impact their productivity. They're not gonna, you know, get the stuff done that needs to be done as well. Maybe they're not gonna communicate as well with other people. It's just gonna impact them. So when a boss is not open to hearing what's occurring there, they're gonna move on. Or the boss is gonna- Most people leave companies not because of the company, but because of their managers. Right. And, you know, unless the leader of the organization is willing to tell on themselves, right? So like you heard me early on say um, some things about my life that I'm not proud of and get emotional about it. So as a leader, if you can't be authentic like that, you're going to run through people. Like you'll have the occasional person that'll stick around forever because they've just figured out how to eat the crap and live with it. But the reality is, is that you're going to have turnover. Now, if the outcome is that you want stability in your organization and you want to have a profitable organization that saves a lot of time and money in hiring people, maybe you want to be open to some coaching. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to look at a system that you can use that would have you be in a position where you can empower other people and you don't have to be the most important person. Like start looking at those things. The only thing I can say to an individual that's oppressed by their manager is I'm sorry. Um, it's not yep. always easy to get through to those people. Absolutely. And, and I would invite you to invite them to like listen to this podcast you know the live and let live foundation Zen that you're co-director of like there's a lot that you guys are doing to help bring people up the stuff that i do with count honorable point them there and it might be something you could say hey i just read something really interesting it could have a positive impact in our environment are you open now if you phrase it like that mm-hmm. now it's not, you know, you're not forcing an outcome. 
you're proposing an idea. Right. And I would invite you that proposals of ideas to management sometimes land. And if, if it does, I would be ecstatic to meet you. And then you can celebrate, right. Now let's yes. take that same, okay, the, let's take that same scenario. Let's drill down a little bit to the, the guy that's approaching the manager or leader that, that isn't coachable or thinks they aren't, right? And yet, whether they're aware that, so by your statements, the, that person is aware that coaching is available and may have had some on their own to get where they're at at that point, right? So from that place then, is there a different way or, or are there different ways to approach that manager in conversation? Like we were talking earlier, right? The, the communication is what's imperative. And, and my dad used to tell me, you know, a, a good politician is someone that can tell somebody to go to hell and get them to look forward to the trip, right? So from that perspective, can you, or are those opportunities to use a different language or approach with that manager that acknowledges them to begin with? Because the process I see is you've got to acknowledge the other person and their value first. Let them know that you appreciate and can see their value. And then with that, it kind of softens them and opens them up slightly to where you might be able to say, you know, I'm having this challenge out here with this and, you know, I'm thinking that we might do this or, or that maybe you could help by doing this. How does that sound? So I think that's, that's a different that's, thing. That, those, are, those are absolutely some tools then, but I want to go back to the trust alignment framework for a minute because, okay. you know, if you have a manager that is, operating the way that you described and they're just not approachable and they're not working with you there's something that's missing probably in the shared values here right and the ability of resources is an important factor in the trust um in the trust Absolutely. framework yeah right so here's the thing that happens is that you wind up having a manager that doesn't think you have the ability anymore. So they start treating you differently, right? Whether or not you have shared values, what's happened is you're either no longer interested in the job or they're no longer interested in you for that job, right? And that's when they get combative, you know? And that's generally when people wanna leave. That's why they leave managers. Managers know how to get rid of people, yeah. right? I've got a perfect story I, uh, that I'd love to share. Uh, it, it won't take too long. I mentioned Allied Signal earlier and my responsibilities there. So six months into my job, I had two supervisors show up at my cubicle. And of course, the first thing you want to do is go, oh, shit, what did I do? Right? Because they, they never approach you. Well, it, they saw the look on my face and they said, no, we're not here for that. You know, we want to know what you're doing because you're at the top of the product of the production um, Success. I forget exactly what the, the list was or what they called it. But we, so top of the pile, man. It's yeah, good. I, I was top of the pile. 35, <laughs> 35 people in the department. And so I said, you know, all I can say is it's interpersonal skills classes. It's how I treat people because I one of the things that brought my success was, hey, how can I help you do your job while you're doing something for me? 
And that was just phenomenal. So uh, we had a production meeting shortly thereafter, the whole department, the general supervisor raised the question, hey, what can we do to help you? And there was nothing, no response. So I kind of took a chance and I said, you know, um, I think interpersonal skills classes would be great or interpersonal skills training would be good for the department because we've all gone through the expediter realms and know how to get around the system. Now we're moving into a place where we're dealing with degreed people who expect a different level of behavior in order to get success. And it seems like you know we're kind of spending our time beating people up to get what we want and that's really not working. And man, I was shunned. Nobody talked to me for a week, 10 days after that, even my cubicle mate. And so it's like, oh, okay, I hit a draw, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then the following year, the, the notice for the meeting got taken off my desk, so I missed it. Came back to my general supervisor, apologized, said, hey, you know, and he says, oh, you know what you're doing. And he said, and we opened it up for suggestions. I said, you know, I still think it, interpersonal skills classes would behoove the department because it doesn't matter what the product is, it's the people that get the job done. He says, you know, you're right. Do you know of anybody? I damn near fell out of the, you know, leaned up against the door jam, almost fell off of it. And I think I might have for a moment. And he kind of chuckled. And I, and I said, yes, I do. I was finishing my degree at University of Phoenix. And, and so I knew I had access. Didn't really know anybody, but I knew I could find somebody. So I went out, found somebody. Three weeks later, brought him in. And we had a discussion. I was included on it with my general supervisor and the consultant, myself. And he had contracts with Sperry, Intel, Motorola, British Navy for team building. And he uh, gave his spiel. The supervisor said, love what you got. Let me talk to my department director and we'll get back with you. Three weeks later, same week my divorce was final, I was demoted. And I eventually left the company about four or five months later. And because I was just distraught from my divorce and I just needed wow. some from everything. So a year and a half later, I run into the purchasing department secretary whose desk had been just outside my cubicle and I'd gotten to know fairly well. And she says, you know, you're not going to believe it. They instituted interpersonal skills development plant-wide. And I was like, wow. yes, you know, a year and a half later, or almost two years, you know, since the, that meeting, and yet it happened. Well, for me, you know, some people would probably get all angry and upset that it didn't happen in the time that they wanted it to. And, and yet I was a company guy. It's like, okay, cool. People will be affected. Their lives will change. Doesn't matter if I'm there or not. I'm, I'm okay where I'm at now, right? Uh, but the fact is, that's probably something that many people go through in that process of trying to introduce change Listen, that you just be better. Right? Yeah, you just illustrated, like, what does it take to, to, it takes getting some momentum and building up and it doesn't always happen overnight. And it's unfortunate because some people leave during the process. And that's just the way it goes. The fact of the I would have loved is, to seen it through, but my life didn't allow it at that time. I needed to make better choices for myself. And that environment wasn't one of them. No, I totally get it. Well, I really acknowledge the effort that you made to have that happen. And I love the spirit you're coming from inside of it. It really, I can 
and see makes a difference for anybody that you touch. So, Zen, thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it's a fortitude that I've, and I have to say, uh, my father actually probably gave me those uh, values, morals, and ethics to be in that place. He was a 32nd degree Mason as well. Oh, wow. Hey, listen, I, I'm loving this conversation, and I've got a client in 30 minutes. Uh, and, All right. Well, um, we're close. Let me ask you this. What advice on the, on the short-term, simple, practical, pragmatic level, what advice can you give to others who see a need for change, both within themselves and organizationally, and how they might begin to facilitate that? I think it's going to be different for everybody. But Zen, your story was a perfect method to share, right? Be courageous. Take a chance. Say something. Don't be quiet. Like, listen, you spend a lot of time at that job. Some people spend more time at work than they do with their family. Mm -hmm. So make it something that you love. You know, and management today is a lot more open to hearing about the things that you would like to have and a lot more interested in keeping you rather than replacing you. Because that's very expensive, not just money-wise, but to the impact on the organization. So even if you are a B player in their eyes, you know that you got hired and you were an A player in their eyes at one time, right? Mm -hmm. Figure out what you're really, really good at. Take the strengths finder test or find another evaluation and look at all, like I can tell you my top five, futuristic, strategic, belief, winning others over and communication. Let me tell you my very bottom, number 34, adaptability. I am not a very adaptable person. Mm. Like once I have it, this is the way we're going. It really takes something for me to build the train tracks that attach to the tracks that I'm on so that I can yeah. make that shift. Yeah. So you're a high D. Right. So when, yeah. you, when you are able to identify those things and have confidence, then you can count on me. I come into your company. I'm going to help you brainstorm and come up with what the future looks like and a strategy on how to achieve it. Now, once we have all of that set in place, until we know that it's not working, I'm going to help you stick with it. I know those things. And by the way, you cannot count on me to do the dishes. But <laughs> you can count on me for those things. I'm countonable. What are you countonable for? If you don't know, let's figure that out. And I'm more than happy to include you in our community, have conversations with people. Um, come to countonable.com. All of the resources from my book, are gonna be downloadable. And today, um, if they're not there just yet, today what is downloadable is the first chapter and everything that leads up to it. And I really invite you to check that out. And you can just download it off the website because it's called Grand Theft Auto. And it's about a time that I stole a car. <laughs> and you're definitely gonna to wanna to read that chapter. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I used to steal my mother's car, it's 15. And I'd sneak out because dad worked at night. He was a tool and die maker for General Motors. And uh, I, I would steal her car in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so my story is nothing like that. I'm sure. And you're going to love it. So I just really invite you to come to the website and check it out. Um, 
let us know if you're interested in a further conversation. Um, I do a lot of public speaking. A lot of organizations are looking for like, how can we get accountability in our organization? They want someone to come and speak or train about that. So we can do all of that. Like you guys brought in someone to implement a program. We do mm -hmm. that for companies. Cool, cool. And, and thank you very much. And, and um, admittance, part of my morning meditation is doing the dishes. I love it. I, I will be honest with you, cooking and then cleaning up. Uh, I'll do the cooking and the prepping. That's my, that's my filling my soul. Right. I hate cleaning the mess up. Yeah. <laughs> it's always on me. I, I, I totally agree. And, and, and yet I'm. So come I'm, over, Zen. I got dishes. I totally need that help. Come I'm over. I'm the chief cook and bottle washer in our family. And we've got my wife and, and her 89 year old, 90 year old mother and her soon to be 18 year old son. I love cooking and my wife's a, a professional piano teacher she's from st petersburg russia that's amazing and she's one of the most amazing uh, pianists and, and teachers in the valley here we're in the phoenix area and so mm. she spends she's got 30 some odd students that she spends time with so she's and the kind of effort that she gives to them it just you know wears her out at the end of the day so this is how i um participate and, and it, it does, you know, the dishes I don't necessarily care for, the, the cleaning I don't necessarily care for, the cooking I love to do. Right. So, that... Well, I want to tell you how aligned we are, and then I got to sign off. But the, so my wife is an actress, and she's been on Broadway, and she's got friends that are, what they do today as a team is they help uh, high school students that want to get into the very best musical theater programs do that. Oh, what are we rewarding? Yeah, yeah. You, you have one of the top 10 schools in your neighborhood. So um, they do a very limited number of students and she's the same because they're students. She's working typically till eight or nine o'clock at night, mm -hmm. right? So I get to do all of that. And I, I will tell you, like I see and feel the rewards of what they do, their kids, like they're on Broadway. My wife always has kids on the top TV shows. Like they're just, it's miraculous, the stuff that gets accomplished, but it gets accomplished in the environment where I know I can say to my wife, hey, honey, you have just triggered the heck out of me. And now there's a choice. Do you want to have a conversation before I clear my head or now? Or later, <laughs> after I've cleared my head. Like, do you want to, can you give me a little bit to sort myself out? So, and the number of fights I have eliminated, it's 90%. Oh, you've learned and, how to hit the pause button. You hit the pause and button and it alleviates 95 or maybe even 99% of the problems because they resolve themselves in your own head. Absolutely. So this is where you actually get to implement the things that are in my book, Count Honorable because they impact your life as well as your business. Like Absolutely. you said, it's interpersonal communication. That well, and you have a whole life. It's not compartmentalized or segmented. It's you're you, you're, there's one you, and you're you, like Keith Harvecker says, what you do anywhere, you do everywhere. Absolutely. 100%. So do you well. <laughs>
Yeah, and I just want to really tell you how grateful I am for this conversation today. And I'm going to look forward to listening to it again myself. Oh, me too. It, it was great. And thank you very much, Jeff. It was a, a true pleasure to uh, speak at this level because it, I don't often get to. And thank you. Well, it's great. All right. Thank you. And to all your listeners, again, it's countonable.com and it's spelled C-O-U-N-T-O-N-A-B-L-E. And I'll have those links below the description. Perfect. All right. And namaste and in la catch. Thanks for sticking with us for this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and I will see you next time. <laughs>